Well, this is a, a terrific time to be talking about Syria because we're actually just a week past the fifth anniversary of the start of the uprising. The, the Syrian uh, uprising or Syrian revolution began uh, on March 15th, 2011, when some teenagers, some 12, 13, 14 year old kids in a city in the south of Syria, uh, a, a city called Dera, uh, put some uh, anti-regime graffiti on, on walls in the city. They were responding to what was happening uh, in the region around them. Uh, Tunisia and Egypt had already experienced successful uprisings that, that forced uh, authoritarian leaders out of, out of power. And, and so kids in southern Syria were sort of feeling uh, a little rambunctious and, and put some graffiti on the wall. And what happened next is, is widely understood as, as the trigger that launched uh, the Syrian uprising. Uh, they were arrested, they were tortured. Um, these kids happened to be uh, children of very prominent families in, in the area. Uh, and when their families went to visit security officials to try to get their kids released, um, they were treated very, very rudely. There's a famous story, famous among Syrians at least, that when they were um, uh, asking for the release of their kids, the security official said, forget about these children. These children are gone. If you want more children, go home and make them. And if you can't make them, we will. And that, that clearly um, was, was uh, seen as, as, as a trigger kind of moment. And it sparked what, what became protests in, in southern Syria and Dera. Uh, and the regime's response then put in motion this dynamic that we've seen unfold and escalate really for the next five years. It, it immediately began a harsh crackdown on, on protesters in Dera. It immediately resorted to the use of force. Uh, it's not that widely known that, that 700 people were killed in Dera in the first three months of the protests. So, so we, we saw this, this dynamic in which citizens would express their uh, interest in political change, would demand political change, the regime would respond with violence, and the whole conflict really escalated from there. And we are now, uh, I'm afraid, entering the, the sixth year of, of this extraordinarily destructive and, and brutal uh, civil war. I, I think we, we have to look at the regime as principally responsible for how the Syrian conflict has unfolded. The, the regime is widely understood to um, have caused the vast majority of civilian casualties in the conflict. Uh, it's, it's armed forces, both the, the army, but also the militias that it uses are um, much, much better equipped than its opposition. And they're using very, very high-powered weapons, artillery, tanks, aircraft, bombs of different kinds that are hugely destructive. And so I think on a physical level and in terms of the human toll that the conflict has taken, the bulk of responsibility does rest with the Assad regime. And that's a finding that's been confirmed by international groups that have investigated uh, claims of atrocities and claims of abuses and the uh, indiscriminate use of, of weapons against civilians. The UN uh, Commission on Human Rights, uh, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, all of these groups 
have um, implicated the regime in war crimes, crimes against humanity, violations of international human rights law uh, on, on a major, major scale. Now, it, it is the case, despite that, that the opposition has also been responsible for some of the uh, of the violence and the destruction that has occurred in Syria. There's there's no real debate about the role of opposition armed groups in activities that are also seen as violations of human rights law, um, as uh, crimes against humanity. And so we have to recognize that there's um, enough blame uh, for what has befallen Syria to go around. But, and, and certainly I shouldn't forget, of course, the role of ISIS uh, and other violent extremist groups in, um, in causing the destruction that, that has befallen Syria. But I don't think we should, we should view the role of all of these groups as equivalent. I, I think that that would be a real mistake. I think we, we can, with significant justification, uh, view the regime as having principal responsibility for uh, the, the, the violence that has afflicted Syria for the past five years. I tend to think that pre-2011 Syria is gone. Uh, I, I think it, it's almost impossible to imagine uh, a return to the status quo that existed in Syria before the uprising. Now that doesn't mean that Syria's fate as, as, uh, as a country that that we can no longer imagine the emergence of some kind of unified Syrian state within the borders that existed before 2011, although even that, I think, isn't uh, completely certain. But it does mean that the idea of recreating a Syrian state governed by uh, a very powerful, in fact, uh, di dictatorial authoritarian uh, central government out of Damascus, uh, a government that gives no room uh, to citizens to organize their own political affairs, um, that doesn't recognize the demands of Syrians over the past five years for political change, and doesn't recognize the incredible sacrifices of Syrians over that period uh, in, in um, seeking a future in which they will have a greater say in organizing their own affairs. The idea that we could return to that kind of a Syria seems to me to be um, almost Im impossible to imagine. Well, you know, the question of, of U.S. policy towards Syria and, and, and whether the, the U.S. might have been able to do something that could have affected the trajectory of the conflict, this is really one of the most hotly debated issues about Syria and about the U.S. role in Syria today. Um, in, in fact, the, the White House continues to insist that there was very little the U.S. could have done to change the course of events in Syria. Um, there are many specialists, uh, scholars, researchers, uh, diplomats who think otherwise. I, I happen to be among those who think that there were opportunities for the U.S. to engage in Syria in ways that could have had an effect on how the conflict unfolded, a positive effect. And I think that opportunity was at its greatest in late 2011 and early 2012, which was a period when the conflict was beginning to militarize. We were beginning to see the emergence of armed opposition groups, 
But at the time, those groups were led by moderates. They were led by um, fighters who uh, included defectors from the Syrian military, uh, defected members of the, of the Syrian police. Those units originally were formed to defend protests from the violence of the regime. And had the U.S. made a more concerted effort to reach out to and engage with those groups, if the U.S. had shown that it was prepared to provide uh, support to those groups, including armed support, one of the things that could have happened is a change in the um, strategic balance on the ground, a shift in the balance of forces between the regime and the opposition that, in the view of many, my, myself included, would have created conditions that would have been much more conducive for a political process to begin that might have led to a negotiated transition in Syria, some sort of change in the political system that could have occurred through negotiations much earlier than has proven to be the case because the regime would have been confronted with a stronger, better equipped, uh, more effective armed opposition earlier in the uprising. Uh, the U.S., as it turns out, did not uh, choose that path. It, it chose a path of disengagement. Uh, it decided not to provide support to the armed opposition. Uh, and the result has been this prolonged, enormously costly conflict in which we're only now, after almost uh, five years, um, a little more than five years, at the point at which we are again struggling to put a political process in place. So from my perspective, had the U.S. been willing to uh, engage a, a bit more fully, had it been willing to provide a bit more support to the armed opposition, uh, we might have found ourselves three, four years ago um, in a political process that would have brought the conflict to a quicker end and, and would have prevented a lot of the, the death and destruction and suffering that's happened uh, because we, we did not choose that course. I understand why um, the White House is concerned about the Islamic State, about ISIS. Uh, we just saw this weekend in Brussels uh, what can happen uh, when ISIS fighters are able to, to leave Syria and, and enter Europe. So the priority attached to ISIS is, is not a mistake. What I do think is a mistake is to think that we can respond to the challenge of ISIS without a comprehensive strategy that also gives us uh, a chance to respond to the, the problems of the Assad regime. I think uh, the, the, the regime has been a significant factor in enabling uh, and facilitating the rise of ISIS. Uh, the violence of the Assad regime has been one of the best uh, recruiting uh, factors for ISIS. And we know that there are direct ties between the Assad regime and ISIS. The U.S. government has, in fact, sanctioned a number of Assad regime officials for their economic dealings with ISIS. So the idea that we can prioritize ISIS without also dealing with the Assad regime, without dealing with the enabler of ISIS, I think is a significant mistake. And I think it means that uh, we are likely to, to find our efforts to, to deal with ISIS uh, ineffective because we have not uh, addressed the underlying conditions that sustain ISIS. And to me, the Assad regime 
uh, is one of the principal factors sustaining ISIS. So I would much prefer uh, and what, what, what has been called a comprehensive strategy, one that looks at the connections between ISIS and the Assad regime and develops a response that's able to deal effectively with both of those factors. Putin's decision to, to draw down uh, forces from Syria took everyone by surprise. Uh, I think that includes uh, President Assad himself. I don't think uh, President Putin consulted anyone before announcing that decision. Uh, and, and it happened at a very interesting moment, and it's, it's unfolding in a very interesting way. It, it happened right at the moment that a new round of negotiations between the Assad regime and the opposition were getting underway uh, in Geneva. Um, and so one interpretation of the drawdown has been that it was intended to signal to the Assad regime that even while it could count on Russia to provide a level of support that would prevent the collapse of the Assad regime, it should not expect the Russians to support the broader political or military ambitions of the Assad regime, and that it expected the regime to make concessions that would bring about or permit a political settlement of the conflict. Uh, so the move has been widely seen, uh, whether correctly or not, as an indication of uh, differences in the interests and preferences of the Assad regime and President Putin. Um, it's clear that the Assad regime, at least in my view, hoped that Russian support would permit it to make much more substantial military gains than, in fact, it was able to achieve uh, during the period when Russia was directly involved in the conflict. And so it, it, it does look as if, as if the Russians are signaling uh, to the regime that they expect it to participate in this process to reach a political settlement of the conflict. On the other hand, the drawdown is not a withdrawal of, of Russian forces. We know that some aircraft have been withdrawn from Syria, although uh, the bases that were developed and enlarged to permit them to function in Syria remain in place. We know that some forces have been removed while other, uh, while other Russian uh, troops remain present uh, in Syria. Russia continues to support right now um, the uh, Assad regime's efforts to retake the historic uh, city of Palmyra, which is held by the Islamic State. So we shouldn't imagine that Rus Russia has disengaged. Uh, President Putin himself has said that, that Russian forces could return to Syria in a matter of hours. Uh, and so this is a very limited, partial, selective drawdown. Um, which, which shouldn't be exaggerated uh, because President Putin is talking about it as if uh, it somehow signals a major shift in, in Russia's role in Syria. I'm not, I'm not sure that's the case. What I think it does, it does raise, however, is the question of Russian leverage over President Assad. Uh, it's, it's been clear that uh, from the regime's perspective, the Geneva process is not where it wants to be. It doesn't view the negotiations as productive. It continues to describe the opposition delegation um, at Geneva in terms of, of, of terrorists and so on. It's made no, uh, it signaled nothing at all about a willingness to make concessions in Geneva. So it does seem that the regime feels that it can 
impose a military settlement on the conflict. And it isn't at all clear that Russia has the leverage to compel the Assad regime to make compromises that might draw it more deeply into a, a political process and give up its ambition of imposing a military outcome on, on, the, on the conflict. And, and what that raises for us is the possibility of a more significant uh, break between uh, Russia and the Assad regime at some point in the future. And it really puts the Russians in a, in a difficult position because here they have a client government, a, a government uh, uh, who, who they have acted militarily to keep in power. Uh, they have put their own soldiers' lives at risk to, to keep President Assad in office. And yet uh, there has been very, very little in the, the behavior of the Assad regime that suggests that Russia's investment in the future of the regime has paid off in terms of leverage. And at some point, Russia is going to have to decide if, if it's comfortable uh, having made that investment with very little to show for it, uh, other than the survival of the Assad regime uh, uh, itself. So it is an interesting moment. It was an interesting move on, on Russia's part. Uh, I think, um, in addition, it also called into question some of the claims uh, of, of the Obama administration that there was no way that the U.S. might have done more militarily to support the opposition without finding itself drawn into an Afghanistan or Iraq-style quagmire. Uh, one of the things that Russia's intervention in Syria shows is that it is possible to be engaged in this kind of, of a conflict militarily on a limited scale and for a limited period of time at a very limited cost. And so uh, the, the intervention has some interesting uh, implications for longer term strategic conversations about the use of outside military force in this sort of a confrontation that I think um, will need to be taken on board by the U.S. Uh, as it thinks about its own uh, options in areas where its interests are at stake in the world. Um, in terms of the, the ceasefire, when, when the ceasefire, the secession of hostilities was initially agreed, uh, it, it was greeted with very, very modest expectations. Uh, I don't think anyone expected the ceasefire would, would hold. And as it turns out, we're about a month or so uh, into the ceasefire at this point, and um, it has held it much more um, robustly than, than many had anticipated. And so in areas where the ceasefire is active, we have seen a significant decline uh, in, um, in levels of violence, and in particular, uh, in the use of air power by the Russians and the regimes against uh, civilian targets. And some, uh, some rough indicators suggest that the decline in violence may be as high as 90% uh, in areas where the ceasefire is active. Now, having said that, um, the situation on the ground, as, as you might expect, is in fact quite complex. If you were to look at a map of the areas governed by the ceasefire, they are really tiny, tiny little pockets of territory um, in a much larger area where conflict is permitted to continue under the terms of the ceasefire. And it's permitted to continue because the areas where groups like the Islamic State, like ISIS, 
and groups like Jabhat al-Nusra, the Syrian affiliate of al-Qaeda, are present, uh, the U.S. and Russia and other powers have agreed that it continues to be permissible to attack those groups. Now, the problem with that is that these are often areas where civilians are found. These are often targets that are being hit without a great deal of evidence that, that some of these fighters associated with extremist groups are present in those locations. And what's also typical of the way the opposition has organized itself militarily is that a lot of groups tend to be active at the same time in the same area. And so we actually find very few locations within Syria, other than those held by the Islamic State, where we don't find a mix of armed groups. Some may be Jabhat al-Nusra, some may be groups that are seen as legitimate targets, but most are not. And so even though the, the ceasefire has held uh, in these very limited areas where it was to be applied, there are much larger areas that are still witnessing high levels of violence, that are still witnessing civilian displacement, uh, that are still witnessing very, very um, bad humanitarian conditions. And on the humanitarian issue more broadly, uh, one of the things the ceasefire was intended to do was to expand access for humanitarian support, uh, including to some of these cities that have been subjected to starvation sieges. There are places in Syria, like the city of Madaya, uh, that have been under siege for over a thousand days. No, no food has been permitted to enter except one or two very, very small humanitarian convoys in the last several months. And we know that there's starvation happening in those cities. And even now, even under the ceasefire, we know that they're not getting the level of humanitarian support that they need. And this, too, is, is largely the responsibility of the Assad regime. The regime uh, plays these kinds of games in which it tells the world that it is prepared to open up areas for humanitarian access. But then when permission is requested for a very specific delivery of aid to a very specific location, the regime will say no, they'll refuse. And so the civilian population of that area will not benefit from any humanitarian support. So we have to look at this ceasefire as a very limited operation. It has produced benefits for the civilians in the areas in which it's in effect. But broadly, in terms of the overall conflict dynamics, uh, I think it's there's probably less to the ceasefire than meets the eye. And I think it should be a priority of the international community uh, to expand the ceasefire, to insist much more vigorously on delivery of humanitarian assistance, and to hold the regime accountable for its failure to honor the terms of the ceasefire in permitting assistance to reach civilian populations that fall within the areas under its um, scope of authority. So there's a lot still to be done, but we do have to recognize that far fewer people are, are dying from barrel bombs and from air attacks uh, as a result of the ceasefire than, than was happening before. Um, we haven't seen uh, much change in the numbers of civilians looking to flee Syria. We have civilians who are fleeing for a variety of reasons. Some are fleeing areas in which ISIS is coming under attack. So we've seen uh, large numbers of Syrians leaving areas that the U.S. and its partners in the anti-ISIS coalition 
are attacking areas that the regime and the Russians are attacking because they're under ISIS control. Um, that violence continues to drive Syrians uh, out of the country and out of their homes. And we also see that, that continued offensives by the regime um, in areas in the northwest of Syria, around Aleppo, north of Aleppo, um, in, in areas where civilians have, have been living under opposition authority now for three or years or more, we, we continue to see large, uh, large displacement waves uh, occurring in those areas. What is changing um, is the willingness of neighboring countries to take in uh, refugees. Lebanon has cracked down on access by Syrian refugees. Uh, Turkey has uh, increased the, the difficulty of entry into Turkey by Syrians fleeing from the north. And Jordan has, has done the same in the south. And that's partly a response, certainly on the Turkish side, that's a response to pressure from European countries, uh, which have been inundated with, with refugees over the last year or so. But if you, if you look at, at the numbers of Syrians who are um, fleeing Turkey, who are trying to enter the European Union, it doesn't seem that the ceasefire has reduced those numbers. In fact, what we may be seeing, you know, perhaps paradoxically, perhaps a bit ironically, is that citizens are taking advantage of a break in the violence to leave during a moment when they feel it's safer for them to do so because they're just not confident that the ceasefire is going to hold and so they're seizing this opportunity. Uh, in addition, Syrians are absolutely informed about what's happening in Europe concerning uh, new barriers to entry for refugees and the decline of free movement within what's called the Schengen zone. And so they also are rushing to Greece now because they're worried that if they wait, it may be too late. So there are some unintended consequences that are uh, associated with this European debate about how to restrict migration flows. And one of them is to increase the incentives for Syrians to move now rather than later. So I, I think we've, we've not seen yet at least uh, any significant decline in the numbers uh, trying to reach Europe or trying to leave Syria. Right from the beginning of the Syrian conflict, what we saw was incredibly widespread use by Syrians from across the political spectrum, both on the regime side and on the opposition side, of all kinds of social media to record images, um, to use Twitter, to use Facebook, uh, to be online to communicate about what's happening on the ground in Syria. And as a result, uh, there is a fairly widespread sense that the Syrian conflict is perhaps the most um, photographed, most videotaped, most tweeted about conflict uh, in history. There are hundreds of thousands of YouTube videos out of Syria that anyone can, can find on YouTube, click on, and watch. There are tens of thousands of Facebook pages that have been created by Syrians or by uh, others interested in the Syrian conflict where information from inside the country is posted and discussed. And there are millions, tens of millions of tweets uh, originating in Syria and neighboring countries globally that focus on the Syrian conflict. And that's given all of us uh, an extraordinary opportunity 
to see what's happening. It's given anyone with an interest in the conflict uh, an unprecedented amount of access to images and to, uh, to content about what's happening. Now, a lot of that content is, is completely unmediated. So there are always questions about what we're seeing. Uh, we know that the Assad regime has uh, disseminated a lot of faked uh, social media content. Uh, and so uh, much of what we see on the internet should be uh, taken with a grain of salt. But there's no question that a lot of it is accurate, that a lot of it uh, contains information that's not only interesting for the public, but gives those of us who, who study the conflict, who gives researchers an incredible uh, database of, of information that we can mine for understanding uh, about conflict dynamics. Uh, for example, there's a lot of interest in radicalization. How is it that individuals who might have begun their participation in this conflict as peaceful protesters later became members of a group like Jebat al-Nusra or ISIS? How did that happen? And what we find is that many of these individuals recorded testimonies uh, on video of their decision to join a group like ISIS, setting out their life experiences since the conflict began, identifying family members who've been lost, identifying specific reasons that led them to become uh, interested in joining a group like ISIS. And for a political scientist or a sociologist or an anthropologist, this is an, an extraordinary source of, of data. So in my own work, I've been using this social media content as a way to understand what it is that motivated people to join the uprising, as a, as a way to understand what motivated people to move from peaceful protest to armed opposition. And then once they were in the armed opposition to move from more moderate to more extremist groups. So we can follow uh, patterns of recruitment, patterns of mobilization, patterns of radicalization, patterns of militarization, just a huge amount of information in these uh, social media sources that we're learning from every, every day. Well, the, the future of Syria, of a post-Assad Syria, is, is one of those um, huge uh, issues that, that a lot of us who follow this conflict wrestle with. Um, our, our hope is that a post-Assad Syria will emerge through a process of negotiation that will produce uh, a government that is more broadly representative, that is more pluralistic, that is uh, more committed to the protection of, of all of the different segments of Syrian society, that may perhaps be a bit more decentralized in extending greater authority to different communities and regions within Syria. Um, if, if, if that kind of an outcome were to occur, uh, I think uh, the possibility for a durable peace in Syria uh, would, would go up significantly. Um, but on the other hand, and, and there is a very strong possibility of, of, of a less positive outcome, in which a post-Assad Syria would be one that continues to be torn by conflict, is one in which the, the local leaders who have, in effect, set themselves up as warlords in the course of the conflict, uh, refuse to lay down their arms and establish local fiefdoms 
that they govern in a very uh, autocratic way, um, not on the basis of rule of law. We could see that there are communities like the Alawi community, for example, that might find its presence in Syria uh, threatened uh, in a post-Assad scenario. And so, uh, and we could, of course, uh, imagine a possibility in which some of the most extreme of the Islamist armed groups uh, gain the upper hand and, and rise to power in Syria. Uh, and so there, there is a possibility that if a political process like the one that is now underway in Geneva is successful, Syria could avoid some of those negative future paths. But I think uh, for the most part, those of us who've been watching this conflict recognize that the odds are, are a bit higher that uh, Syria is more likely to find itself moving down one of those more negative paths than, than the more positive path. And, and, and that, of course, would simply extend the Syrian tragedy uh, in, into the indefinite future. We could be looking at the possibility of, of a generational uh, tragedy in Syria rather than, than the already very destructive conflict that Syrians have experienced. I, I think it's important for students at Smith to have some sense of the conditions that contributed to uh, the Syrian uprising. Why, why did this happen? Why did it occur? Um, why did the regime respond with so much violence? What produced the conflict dynamics that we now see unfolding in Syria? There are, there are long-term, very deep historical and structural conditions that need to be understood in order to get a handle on what's happening in Syria today. And you don't get a good sense of, of why Syria has arrived at, at the terrible state that it's in today just by reading the newspapers. You do need to know more about the contemporary history of Syria, about the, the economic factors that led so many Syrians to pour into the streets in 2011. Why were they so... Uh, angry with the Syrian regime. And we need to know why the Syrian regime resorted so quickly to violence and why it's been so determined to hang on even at the cost of the destruction of the country and the death of so many Syrian civilians. And I think we need a, a, a way to communicate to students and to work with students uh, to bring them to a point where they feel comfortable when they read the newspaper understanding what some of those underlying factors are so that they have a context, they have a, a kind of a framework that can help them give meaning to events that can often appear to be very chaotic, very difficult to understand if you don't have that framework to help you.